0: Five years ago this week, this happened.
1: Just announced a plan to take over troubled mortgage giants Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. The government's plan means...
2: A short two days later, another momentous event. The first ever Planet Money podcast
1: was released. I am Adam Davidson, international economics correspondent for National Public Radio. And I'm just starting to run something new here at NPR. We're calling it Planet Money and our goal is to take the big, complex global economic issues, the kind of thing I think most people feel like they really should know a lot about and understand, but they don't and they get really confused. Um, well, our job here, or what we're trying to do is to make this all easier for you. We're working really hard and hopefully we'll succeed, at least most of the time, to help you understand how the world economy works and how it affects your life. And right now, this right here is our first ever podcast. Dun dun dun.
2: <laughs> it was just Adam <laughs> Davidson, our very own Adam Davidson, hosting in the studio. They doing... Didn't they have music? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was there no Caitlin to mix in the music that everybody loves? <laughs> there though? was not. He had to do his own background music himself. And let's just think about this. He happened to be launching this podcast about the global economy at the precise moment the biggest crisis to confront the global economy in almost a century had just kicked off. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Jacob Goldstein. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Today, at roughly the five-year anniversary of the financial crisis, depending on when we'll you call We'll call it the five-year anniversary. call it the five-year Also, the five-year anniversary of Planet Money. And we're going to take a look back at those initial months on Planet Money. It's a clip show, what we reported back then. And then we're going to ask, five years later, are we any safer? Dun-da-dun! Dun, dun. <laughs> Thanks, Jacob. All right. So the, the subject of that very first podcast was, of course, the federal takeover of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the two mortgage giants. They were on the brink of insolvency. They got taken over by the federal government. That was two days before Adam went on to the first podcast. And so he started off the podcast talking about it this way.
1: I'm pretty sure you've heard this idea that China and the U.S. are in a crazy kind of codependent relationship. We keep buying stuff from China with our dollars. Then China turns around and lends those dollars right back to us so we can then buy some more stuff from China. They lend some more money to us on and on. But what you might not know, and I didn't know until very recently – is that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, those two companies you've heard a lot about lately, they are central. They are crucial to that whole recycling of money process. They make it happen, or at least they help make it happen.
2: So Adam talked to an expert about exactly how that happens, how the dollars that pile up in the Chinese central bank are loaned back to U.S. home buyers in the form of mortgage-backed securities, a term that many of us were hearing for the first time back then. And Jacob, what was sort of notable listening back to this podcast in retrospect is how calm and measured this conversation was. I mean,
0: you know, Planet Money is an NPR podcast, right? Calm and measured, that's sort of what
2: we're about. But it's sort of like it's a big deal for Fannie and Freddie, but not for the rest of us. It's sort of like before the slasher shows up and the kids are still having fun at the lake house or whatever, you know. But already by just the second podcast, the tone had started to shift. Adam was talking to this guy, Tim Adams, a former undersecretary to the Treasury under George Bush. And Tim used the term to describe Fannie and Freddie that we would come to hear a lot over the next five years.
1: They are too big to fail. Everyone tells me this. They're too big to fail. So I don't understand what that means. I mean, that doesn't mean they're too good to fail, obviously, because they were run pretty badly.
3: Too big in in that they were ubiquitous. Everyone held their assets. They were enormous. Think about a portfolio that's five trillion dollars, that's half the size of of the US economy, a large fraction of the global economy. So when you have something of that magnitude that is so systemically important, it can have an important effect if just even small variations in their price, but just to let them go would have, I wouldn't say cataclysmic, but you run the risk of near cataclysmic set of conditions. Describe cataclysmic, what would that be? Credit markets would seize. Uh, Would would seize up You mean the mortgage industry would seize? I I would think it would be across the board I think there would be so uh, If if they were to collapse There would be such a systemic uh, uh, Set of conditions that credit markets Generally would either stop Functioning or the price That you would have to pay to borrow would be So exorbitant that people would stop borrowing And if you can't borrow you can't run your business You can't go to school you can't run a university You can't expand And therefore the economy stops the economy stops. We are built on credit, and that's what runs the economy. It's what runs the real economy. It's what every businessman, every businesswoman gets up every day. They need, they need credit to just run their daily operations, just cash flow, or, again, to expand. Without access to credit, the economy seizes. I mean, it just stops.
2: One of the weird things about historical memory is that, you know, events often get compressed and put much closer together in time than they actually happened. You know, the classic example is the stock market crash of 1929 and the advent of the Great Depression. We sort of mush them together in our minds, even though the stock market crash happened, you know, a year and a half before some of the worst things of the Great Depression, the bread lines and whatnot. But listening back to our podcast... The financial crisis—it actually happened in exactly the order we mentioned it, right? You know, it's like, a lot happened in a week. A, a two weeks. lot happened in a week. So the first podcast, Fanny and Freddie go under. The second podcast, we're introduced to the idea of too big to fail and to the notion that the economy will stop. And then by the third podcast, just a week later, this
1: is the Planet Money podcast. This is our third podcast, and this time we're going to answer questions about this unfolding financial crisis. I guess I should say it is Monday, September 15th at 10 minutes to 3. Lehman Brothers is declaring bankruptcy today. The stock market is down considerably. But for all we know, other things have unfolded since we are talking now, but we think most of our answers will apply for the foreseeable future.
0: This is a crazy moment. When you're tracking a podcast, you have to say, it's 10 minutes till 3, because maybe at 3.15, somebody else will go bankrupt. And
2: also, it's perhaps the biggest untruth we've ever told on the podcast, (laughs) (laughs) where he says, but we think most of our answers will apply to the foreseeable future. In fact, the very next moment in this podcast, he answers the very first listener question, and uh, I'll I'll play the tape. You're going to hear the voice of Laura Conaway, one of the early members of the Planet Money team also.
4: All right, this is from Jenny, who says she's not in the banking industry, doesn't trade stocks, considers herself an average worker with average 401K, trying to pay back her student loan. Can you explain how the events of the weekend affect an average Jane like me, and how should I respond?
1: I would say the uh events over the weekend, Lehman Brothers declaring bankruptcy, Merrill Lynch selling itself to Bank of America in a last minute panic move, these don't really affect you and are unlikely to affect you in any serious way. They do in some ways make the whole global economic system feel a little less stable and in other ways they make the global economic system slightly more stable, which we can get into later, but uh Unless there is some global systemic crisis, which is unlikely but possible, unless that happens, there really isn't an effect for you. So I think unless you're curious about it, you can feel free to ignore it for now. Adam Davidson has not really been able to live that
0: comment down (laughs) around Planet Money here. But but I mean, you know, look, hindsight is easy. And sure, it's fun to give Davidson a hard time. But like, it just wasn't yet clear, although... It would become clear very soon after that, in fact, by our fourth podcast.
4: So what's happening right now um, as we speak is that I think AIG is out there trying to get a deal to start right. alive. Right. With this right?
1: fast-moving story, we should say it's six minutes until four on September 16th. Um, Lehman Brothers seems like it might at least have a small rescue package from Barclays Bank. AIG, uh, the giant insurer was supposed to be saved by a consortium of banks. It looks like that has fallen apart. We're waiting to find out if the federal government's going to step in or what's going to happen there. People are very nervous. The near collapse and eventual bailout of AIG, this is you know, a turn
0: in the story in the sense of this is really where the government bailouts of the financial system began.
2: Right. And the bailouts are something that we are still wrestling with. How do we feel about it? Because on the one hand, taxpayer dollars to bail out you know some of the largest financial institutions in the world for stupid mistakes that they've made, that feels fundamentally unfair. On the other hand, without them, maybe things would be worse for the rest of us. It's a real hard thing to figure out what to do with. And even at the time, I remember talking to a, a trader on Wall Street about this and he was wrestling with these same issues. His name was Tom Corona and I interviewed him for a story we did around this time for This American Life.
5: I am sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place because I'm you know, watching the career I've chosen and it's been very good for me. Uh, but I'm watching the whole system sort of implode and I, yes, I want the bailout to save Wall Street because this is where I work. But then I look in a bigger picture what's better for the country and for my children. I have three boys, and I do not believe this billion-dollar bailout helps out my children or anybody's children over the long run. People made stupid loans, and now they want the government to bail them out. And I'm sorry. At this point, it's my tax dollars. It's your tax dollars. I just think we have to say no. And did you actually call You called your congressman? Uh yes, I, I, I sent them bo- I sent all of them emails. Uh, my email basically said I was against any sort of bailout plan, yeah. that there were other, uh, there were other issues to deal with, and that I was a 27-year Wall Street veteran in the institutional money markets, and if you would like to discuss it any further, I'd gladly take his call. Has anybody called? Nobody has called. <laughs> I don't take it personally.
2: But to give you a sense of how fast things are changing, that tape of Tom Corona is from a week ago. And when we talked to him today, he said he does support the bailout bill now for two reasons. There have been changes made to the law, which he likes. But also, and probably more importantly, he's a lot more scared now than he was just seven days ago. This last week has convinced him that the crisis is spreading and that the bigger risk to his children now is doing nothing. As it became clear that the crisis was spreading, One of the things that we started to sort of take as our mission here at Planet Money was to try to explain all this financial arcana, like all these terms that were getting thrown at you in the news, you know, credit default swaps, mortgage-backed securities. And, of course, my favorite toxic asset, the CDO, the Collateralized Debt Obligation, which is
0: basically a bunch of loans bundled together, sliced up and sold off to investors. Adam
2: Davidson talked to this guy, Witt Solberg, who was in the CDO business. And they looked at one CDO in particular. It was called Coronado. It contained mortgage loans, office loans, and a
6: bunch of other really unexpected loans as well. There were loans on – it depends. It could be on a plane. It could be on specific airline routes uh, and so forth. And it was a way that – Wait, wait,
1: wait. How can you have a loan of an airline route?
6: <laughs> well, you know, it's, it, it, you could get receivables from uh, – an airline would say, look – from, we used to, between Tokyo and Korea, there was a, there was a, a a flight that was loaded up every, every Friday night. And Korean airlines came and they said, look, we need, we would like to get a loan for a plane or some planes on that particular route. And what we will do is everybody that buys a ticket for that plane will pay, the, the ticket will be paid into a trust. And that trust will pay itself interest and then give the extra amount of money to korean airlines and um so what the way that that loan that trust when it was receiving those payments was basically getting money before the airline was and the airline used uh, the loan that they got to buy a bunch of planes and to bolster up the route and that's how they financed themselves and the reason they did it this way is they didn't want to get you could believe in a specific route but you didn't want to get caught up in the problems with the entire airline or the airline's business or its other so i don't financing own problems.
1: korean airlines i just all you, i care about is korea japan
6: you 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 own this particular route and not just any korea japan i own fridays at 7 that's that that's a possibility or dailies at 7 or something like that and and that's the way you'd get paid and mm-hmm. you can you can evaluate passenger loads and potential for new competition and all of this other stuff, and and investors liked that because it was simple, and and they. This but they
1: not sound simple. <laughs> I just want to summarize with this one CDO Coronado CDO. Mm-hmm. I could, I could live in a home and pay my mortgage, and part of that mortgage payment goes to Coronado CDO. Mm-hmm. Then I could, go to my office. And my office building is paying its mortgage, which is also partly going to Coronado CDO. Mm-hmm. On my way to work, I could make a cell phone call. And, with a, and the cell phone tower that handles my call is sending money, part of which goes to the CDO. And then I could fly home to visit my mother from Phoenix to Topeka. Mm-hmm. And that f- ticket I'm paying is going to the CDO. That's
6: right. And that's why... You've just basically summarized why the whole financial markets are linked by CDOs.
2: So that seems like as good a spot as any to end. the Looking back, the retrospective part of of this podcast, I guess what we need now is a a piece of music to sort of transition to the next part of the podcast. (laughs)
1: Dun-da-dum!
2: Well done, Adam Davidson. So... This week, I wanted to sort of discuss all this with somebody. and so, so I called up this guy, Scott Mather. He works for a company called PIMCO, which is one of the world's largest money managers. They have almost a trillion dollars of people's savings, your pension fund, my pension fund, you know, retirement accounts, whatever. And they are the ones who decide where do we put that money where it will be safe and get a return. In particular, PIMCO is basically a bond fund. So people like Scott Mather are the ones deciding who do we lend money to and who do we not lend money to. And I started off by asking him this question that is still surprisingly controversial. What actually caused the crisis in the first place?
4: What caused the crisis is, is too much debt and too much reliance on debt and too much debt um, that has been used to fuel consumption and not used for productive investment. That's, uh-huh. the, that's the problem.
2: So if, we were, if the U.S. was borrowing the debt... If if the U.S. was borrowing the money and building the next Internet, then you'd be more okay with it. But since a lot of that money is being borrowed and essentially uh, put into just stuff for people to buy, a lot of it is somehow finding its way into housing or other things like that, that's a less productive use of that money.
4: Right. A large part of the spending has been used to fuel consumption. Right. So, uh, you know, On the other side of it, we don't, we don't have anything to show for it, and we haven't raised the productive capacity of the economy. We don't have any income-producing assets.
2: And, and that was certainly the case. An extreme version of that was happening right before the crisis, which is you had a lot of borrowing happening, and all the money that was borrowed was being funneled into this one sector of the economy, housing. Now, five years later, are you seeing something similar in another sector, or is it more spread out in, uh, around the globe?
4: Yeah, it seems more spread out around the globe. I mean, we still see lots of uh, imbalances between countries. In other words, the countries that were dissaving, uh, not saving enough, um, consuming too much, and still too reliant on debt, the, the countries you would list today are largely the same ones you would have listed five years ago. Mm-hmm. So those imbalances are still there. They're just not as large as they were. Mm-hmm. And we certainly don't get the sense that we have the same uh, level of vulnerability in the global financial system. Much of the the hidden leverage has been exposed. Um, Banks have uh, raised capital, certainly um, levels of capital, much, much higher than before the financial crisis in most areas of the
2: world. And when you say they've raised levels of capital, that means that they have a bigger buffer. They haven't borrowed as much money relative to their size, essentially. Right. It sounds like you're saying that we're safer now than we were five years ago. Well, I, if I, I know you, though, you would, don't want to say that. Yeah.
4: Well, we wouldn't. We wouldn't say that. I mean, the the risks have changed. I mean, safer would mean that we had levels of growth that would allow the system to heal more quickly and allow levels of debt to come down mm-hmm. as a percentage of GDP. Safer would mean that we would be in a world where those are big imbalances between countries, the ones that couldn't save and the ones that you know uh, save too much, had largely been corrected. And it's happened to a small extent but not to a great extent, so that still leaves us in our minds very vulnerable.
2: If you had to pick one place in the world or one sector that is the top of your list, the top place to sort of feel like if there is another crisis that comes along, it's going to come from here, what would it be? You have to pick one.
4: Have to pick one. Oh, that's you know, it, it's difficult. I guess we're in the business of not picking the one, but picking picking all the ones we need to watch.
2: You are now. You're on the, uh, <laughs> like I, in, the in the popular press. We like lists, and we like them to have a number one. What's well, like your one. number one?
4: <laughs> and and you know, we haven't talked about Europe. I mean, I you know, it's fair to say that uh, that Europe still presents a, a bigger risk. And in many ways, the U.S. looks less risky now than than the rest of than the rest of the world. Both so Europe America would be the top of your list. Uh. In terms of, um, well, you know, I don't know if I'd do that. I don't know if I'll be able to give you the one, because Japan and China are both uh, both really big risks as well. So, and Europe uh, certainly, you know, it looks stable now, but have we moved really much f- uh, further towards political or or fiscal union in Europe in the last year or two? Uh, and the answer is not really. Um, you know, it's our feeling that overall the way this is set up is for a period of of rolling crises. Uh, in the global economy and in financial markets for as far as the eye can see. And that would be you know, until the point where we get enough deleveraging, levels of debt relative to growth come down, and we get the imbalances between countries, between those that save and, and invest and in those that, um, that issue debt and consume, until those imbalances close more, we're going to be set up for a situation where there will be periods of
2: rolling crises. Does that mean that you're looking at a period where it's going to feel like September of 2008 again in the next couple of years, and then it'll feel like it again five years after that?
4: Well, we don't think that's, uh, that's likely. And you know, given that that crisis in 2008 really was centered in the U.S., I mean, it would be unlikely that uh, someone sitting in the U.S. would feel it to the same extent that they felt it then, even if we had a similar-sized event, but it was centered in, in Europe or in, uh, in Asia.
2: It wouldn't come back to our shores necessarily. So it might feel like, so Europe two years ago, two summers ago, to people like you, that was a real nail-biter. There was crazy stuff happening. It was like, oh my God, is this whole thing going to fall apart? It made the news here, but I feel like most Americans, it wasn't like, oh my God, run for the hills again. It wasn't like 2008. You're saying it'll right. maybe feel more like that to the average American.
4: Yeah, probably. And you know, for those people who, who dig deeper, they will understand that, that even when things like that happen in the rest of the world it's one of the reasons why you know US economic growth has been so poor in
2: this recovery phase so rolling crises means no longer like the scary scary times of 2008 but it means yeah, and, more uh, of the same it means more of like sort of you know my 26 year old son is still living at home because he can't find a job and it means more of i know a lot of people who still can't find a job, who've been unemployed for a long time, that's going to continue. It's just sort of continuing in this phase for longer and longer than we would like.
4: Right. It, it means you know a generation that uh, that experiences you know, an entirely different economic situation than any generation we've had prior to it. You know, in the last century.
2: Right. Are there any? What's the most hopeful sort of development you've seen post crisis?
4: Uh, the most hopeful uh, development. Let's see, what would that be?
2: I'm asking you to step outside <laughs> your comfort zone here, Scott Mather. But
4: <laughs> think about what's uh, what's really gone right, huh? Um, you know, yeah, boy, that's 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 tough. I guess you know the, the 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 best thing is to say that at least there haven't been, you know, uh, there haven't. <laughs> you can't been, think of anything, can you? <laughs> no, I mean there haven't been. You could say what, there haven't been uh, the, the tensions between nations, um, although every, everyone's had a problem in general with low growth, and there's certainly been some geopolitical problems. I mean, there, it hasn't yet moved to the phase, which we were very concerned about, where uh, there would be protectionism and a real turn inward. That was the type of situation that sort of unfolded uh, after the Great Depression. You know, there's been small examples of that that have happened since the financial crisis, but... You know, there's been much le- less of it than what we feared. And so that's very helpful in terms of this healing process that the world is going through in terms of gradually trying to to uh, outgrow the debt problem.
2: So essentially what Scott Mather is saying is that at least the world didn't enter into sort of a protectionist spiral, which is basically what happened before World War II, you know, where like the Great Depression, countries clamped down and what was already bad got worse.
0: And to be clear, you know, here we are five years after the crisis, and there are still millions fewer jobs than there were before the recession. Things are still really bad. But when you go back and listen to these shows from September 2008, when people were really talking about the economy entirely ceasing to function, you realize it could have been worse.
2: All right, we got some real music now. (laughs) Uh, As always, we would love your thoughts, questions, comments. Please write to us, planetmoney at npr.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Jacob Goldstein. I'm Alex Bloomberg. Thanks for listening.
1: Be walking round a zoo with the sun shining down over me and you And there'll be love in the bodies of the elephants Turn I'll put my hands over your eyes but you'll peek through